Hear now God's holy word from 1 Samuel 21, continuing our study in the book of Samuel. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I've commanded you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the showbread, which had been taken from before Yahweh, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for your holy word. And we ask you to fill us with your spirit as we enter in uh, to study it today. As we place ourselves beneath your word for its instruction, we submit ourselves to you and we ask you to give us clarity, give us understanding, deliver me from all error, keep us all from distraction, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Well, just like I try to keep myself from... Uh, quoting Moby Dick more than once a year, I, and I think I've already used that this year, I, I also try to hesitate and not use, not lean too much on Flannery O'Connor, but I think I haven't read anything from her in about a year or two, so I'll, I'll, I'll cash that check in now. I'll ca cash those chips in. It's no secret how much I love the works of Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she was an author who lived in the middle of the last century, not, she born in 1925, died in 1964. She was a southern uh, Christian author, and, and as a Christian and as a Southerner, she masterfully captured in her stories both the depths of human depravity and the expanse of God's grace in, in all of its glory, both in its splendor, but also in the hard edges of God's glory, the way that God's glory is often um, tough to take and the bitter providences she doesn't ignore she includes those as well God's grace is brutal in many places in Flannery's work and so her her grace is no sentimental grace it's no greeting card grace it's uh, a grace comes in the form of a angry bull who gores you I mean that's that's God's grace and, and she wrote through these oddball characters that you could not only relate to, but if, if you're a Southerner, if you grew up in a rural area of the country, you could not only relate to these people, but you were probably also related to some of them. You felt like these are, these are some of your people. And so some of the criticism she received from the elite literary critics of her day, the criticism centered on the grotesque nature of her stories and characters. Not grotesque in the sense that they were vulgar or disgusting, but, uh, Grotesque in that she employed situations and characters that were surreal, that were outlandish. Her characters had these deformed souls where 
one character flaw would represent or stand for the entire person. That's what is meant by grotesque. Like, like the cartoon drawings you get at the carnival where they, where they draw you. And if you've got a big nose, well, then they make a really big nose. If you have big ears, well, then that's the whole thing. They make really big, big ears. And that, that, was, that was her character. One feature becomes the whole the characters that she wrote. So, so in her writing, she pulls us away from the expected and the ordinary, and, and she pulls us into the unexpected and brings us into these mysteries that she wants to poke around in, and, and yet her world still have this inner coherence. So she answered some of her critics. I want to read just a, a little piece. It really does have something to do with 1 Samuel, I guarantee you. Um, but she said this. She wrote in one of her essays, when we look at a good deal of serious modern fiction, and particularly Southern fiction, we find this quality about it that is generally described in a pejorative sense as grotesque. Of course, I found that anything that comes out of the South is gonna be called grotesque by the Northern reader, unless it is grotesque, in which case it's going to be called realistic. And she goes on, she says, the novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him and his problem will be to make these distortions appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to the hostile audience. When you have to assume that your audience does not hold the same beliefs you do, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. Listen to this. To the heart of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. So she's defending her work and saying, the reason that I have to uh, write about these, these freaks is because I'm trying to show you the depths of human depravity and you're so used to depravity, you're so used to sin and wickedness that I have to, I have to draw this stuff out and I have to expand it so you can see because you're blind and because you're deaf. One last thing. She wrote, whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it's because we're still able to recognize one. <laughs> to be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still, in the main, theological. I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. I bring this up because in our, our text this week, I had this feeling as I'm reading about Saul, I'm, I'm feeling like, this is something like out of Faulkner. This is, this is something out of uh, Flannery O'Connor's work. I, I feel like I'm, I'm reading because, uh, one of their works because Saul would fit right in with their freaks and their oddballs. But of course, it's not the Bible, obviously, who's imitating Faulkner or O'Connor. That's, that's backwards. Uh, at their best, good authors are imitating the Bible's way of telling history and the way that the Bible paints the human condition. Saul is a freak. Saul's story is grotesque because he stands in the place of all unbelief, all apostasy, all depravity and rebellion. His actions show us in, as Flannery would say, in large and startling letters, the depths of the destruction, of turning away, of breaking covenant. The, the book of Samuel is shouting to the heart of hearing, this is the way of apostasy. This is how far 
and how publicly and how sickeningly you can fall away from the faith if you insist on high-handed rejection of the covenant. That's what this looks like. This is, this is what it looks like. So come see, come look. You want to harden your heart. You want to reject instruction. You want to not repent when you sin. You, you want to you stick cotton in your ears when people are telling you to straighten up. Come look at Saul. See where that goes. See where that leads you and watch how you lose everything. That's what Saul is showing us. Now, it seems like each week of the study, we're seeing Saul cross a line he's never crossed before. And he just takes another step and another step. And before long, we're going to see him uh, off in uh, complete uh, paganism. But the point is, is that he doesn't jump all the way over all at once. He just keeps nudging over. Little by little, and in our reading today, he's going to cross a line that he's never crossed before. But, but he wants, once he crosses it, this is a significant step. And it shows us just how far he's moved from that young man so full of potential, full of the Holy Spirit. God said, I changed him into another man. Saul prophesied. And now we see where he is and how he's ended up. Last week, we saw David's final full departure from Saul's house. And along the way, we've uh, compared David's story to others that we're well familiar with in the scriptures. One prominent parallel we've been tracking is the Exodus. And I want to catch us up on that theme. David leaves Saul's house at night, just like Israel left uh, Egypt at night uh, in the Passover. As he left, the gods were shamed. Uh, remember when his wife... Uh, uh, embarrassingly uses a, a, an idol, a household idol, to help him escape, just as God shamed the idols and the false gods of Egypt. Saul pursues David, just as Pharaoh pursued uh, Israel. God's Holy Spirit brought Saul down on his face, remember, just as God destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. And now that David goes out into the wilderness, what do we expect him to find? Well, he is going to find manna. David is going to be fed manna in, in this account. Uh, his manna is the table, uh, the bread from the table of showbread in the, in the sanctuary. But David's going to find manna. David is going to find provision in the, in the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, David is going to have a company, a host of people, a mixed multitude who are with him there in the wilderness. They are the beginnings of a new nation. Uh, and, and this new nation is being formed around David at the center in the wilderness, and they're going to go in and they're going to conquer the land when it's time and take it over. But the wilderness is a place of trial and a place of death for David, just as it was for Israel. And David is going to spend the next 10 chapters in the wilderness. He's going to spend the next uh, 10 chapters wandering until he can enter the land victoriously as king and bring peace and order to the land, kicking out the idolaters. So David is embodying the story of Israel and their exodus. And if David is Israel, then who is Saul? Well, Saul's Pharaoh. And what is Saul's house? Saul's house is Egypt. David also is, is always pointing us forward to the greater son, um, Jesus, David's greater son, Jesus. Just like David, Jesus is going to be opposed by the kings and rulers of Israel. Just like David, Jesus is going to gather around him disciples to form a new nation. 
Just like David, Jesus is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so through this period, David is preparing us for Jesus. David is not only embodying Israel's story, but he's also embodying the story of Messiah, of, of his greater son, Jesus. So always, um, this is what preserves us from studying these books and saying, okay, well, don't be like Saul here and you know, be like Jonathan there, is because we, it's not simply a moralistic lesson, though there are a great many applications we can make and will continue to make. We also have to remember, David is always pointing us forward to our Savior. Dave, David is always pointing us forward to Jesus. Well, as we open this chapter on this day, he left Jonathan, he left the house of Saul. He goes about five miles away to uh, the city of Nob, the city of priests, and he goes to find help. This is the place where the sanctuary, the tent of meeting had been placed. Remember the tabernacle is no more. The tabernacle is not gonna be put back together until David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem many years from now. Right now, the temple, I'm sorry, the tabernacle has been torn apart. When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they took and moved the other furniture in the other tent and they moved it to Nob. And now the, the Ark is in hiding and we have a sanctuary here, we have priests here, we have the temple furniture in the front chamber of the tabernacle, but there's nothing in the Holy of Holies. We've got the candlestick, we have the altar of incense, we have the table of showbread, but you go into the inner court and there's nothing there. The, the tabernacle right now in this time is like a staircase that leads nowhere. It's, you go in and you've got some of these things, so there's some semblance of priestly worship going on and there are intercessions and prayers being made, but God has taken apart his house and he's only gonna put it back together ultimately when Solomon comes. That's really when it's gonna be all put back together and everything's going to return to the previous glory that, that it had. But, so at this point, this is where David goes. He goes to the sanctuary, he goes to the city of priests and the priest that he meets is Ahimelech. Who's Ahimelech? Well, if you're keeping track of your, of your names, Ahimelech is the brother of Ahijah, who we met several chapters ago. Ahimelech and Ahijah are the sons of Ahitub. Are you keeping track? Uh, Ahijah, Ahimelech are the sons of Ahitub. Ahitub had a famous brother named Ichabod. Remember Ichabod? Ichabod was born when uh, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were killed. Remember that. So, um, Ahitub and Ichabod were the sons of Phineas, and Phineas was the sons of Eli, the son of Eli. So let me let me go back the other way. Eli, who was the priest who ministered when Hannah came up to the tabernacle, there was Eli, his son Phineas, Ahitub, and now Ahimelech, who David talks to in this chapter. This is the great grandson of Eli. Now this is significant because the house of Eli is still ministering in Israel, but the house of Eli is cursed, remember? God told Eli, there's not gonna be an old man in your house forever. The way that you're acting and the way that you're abusing Israel and the way that your sons are going rampant and, and running wild, all the men of your house are gonna be cut off in the flower of their age. That was the curse on Eli's house. Well, if the Lord tells you something like that or the Lord tells your great grandfather something like that, you're gonna live your life looking over your shoulder, wondering when it's your time. And that may be one of the reasons why when David gets here, Ahimelech trembles and he says, 
Who are you? Why are you here? So much who are you? He knows David, but, but what are you, what business are you on? What are you doing here? And he's got to be thinking, okay, what now? What am I getting into? David doesn't tell Ahimelech that he's running away from Saul. David says, I'm on a secret mission from King Saul and I need food for my men. My men who just are not here right now. <laughs> I've sent my young men off to another place. There are no young men. There's only David. David is by himself. Uh, and he says, I need food. Well, the only bread that Ahimelech has here on this day is the bread on the table of showbread, which ordinarily the priests were only su supposed to eat. Remember, every Sabbath day, 12 loaves of bread, 12 fresh loaves of bread are put on the table of showbread in two stacks of six. And then the incense is put on top of the bread. And the bread there stays all week until the next Sabbath before the, uh, the lampstand, before the candles, uh, before, the, before the light. And so these 12 loaves, one for each tribe of the house of Israel, sit all week bathed in incense before the light, the image there seems pretty obvious. The tribes are kept in the light of God's countenance and in his guidance as they're bathed in worship and they are food. They would both be provided for, they would be food for the nations. The, the tribes of Israel are bread for the world. Well, this is the bread that David wants to eat. And Ahimelech says, well, the bread's hot because we just, we just put it out. And there's some question about whether David and his hypothetical men could eat this bread that the priest has to wrestle through. But David convinces the priest that we're, we're holy warriors. A Nazarite, if you take a Nazarite vow, you become like a temporary priest. You take a vow to protect the land, you protect the boundaries, and you have to live like a priest. A priest can't drink wine as long as he's serving in the tabernacle. And so the Nazarite says, well, I'm not going to drink wine until my job is complete. So <clears throat> David, in so many words, says, we're like, uh, we're, we're like Nazarites out here on the secret mission. Ahimelech is satisfied and gives David bread for his non-existent men. Of course, David needs the bread to go on to, uh, to find a place to hide. So why does David deceive Ahimelech? Why doesn't he just come straight forward and tell Ahimelech what's going on? He could tell him, but it, he deceives him, and it may be that Ahimelech wouldn't help him if he knew that he was running from Saul. Maybe Ahimelech would say, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to lose my head over, over you. But it also seems that David does this to protect Ahimelech. So that if Ahimelech has ever asked, did you help David? Ahimelech can say, well, I did help him, but he said he was coming on a mission from you, Saul. And I, I do what your servants tell me to do because to obey him is to obey you. And I just was doing what I was supposed to do here. And so, yes, I helped him, but he lied to me. And Ahimelech had plausible deniability. I didn't know anything. David is your servant. Um, and so that's probably why David deceives him is to protect the priest. Now, if this were a film, the camera would pan and zoom in on a shady, nefarious character hiding in the background among the priests and the other temple servants that day. There's one, there's one person lurking in the back, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, 
the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Edomites are descendants of Esau who have a long grudge and a bone to pick with Jacob, with Israel. So here's Doeg the Edomite, a servant of Saul, directly reporting to Saul, hang on to that information, it's going to come up again. Doeg is there that day. Let's continue reading. Verse 8. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not on hand a spear or a sword? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Now, if you're a Himalayan, David's story has got to start to sound pretty fishy at this point. You're here with a whole group of guys who I haven't met, who I can't see. You're here on a secret mission from Saul, and you don't have any food, and you don't have any weapons. What, what, what are you doing here? What's going on? At, at any rate, Ahimelech still complies. He still plays along. David retrieves the sword he took from Goliath, the sword that he used to cut off Goliath's head, the one he put as a trophy in God's house, and now he's going to take it out and continue to use it to fight the Lord's enemies. And this is what, this is what the church does. This is what God's people's, people do. We take the weapons of the enemy and we learn how to use them against them. They, uh, the, the world always advances in technology and art and science and all these areas. And we learn from them. We really can learn and grow and understand what they're doing. But we learn it so that we can use it and employ their weapons in the service of King Jesus. And that's what David does. He takes the sword of the enemy and now he's going to use it against the, the enemy. And now David goes to a place where nobody would ever think to look for him. He goes to Goliath's hometown. Now, I don't know how you walk or how you sneak into Goliath's hometown carrying Goliath's sword. It's a giant sword. It's not like you can put it in your backpack or your fanny pack. It's a big thing. And now David is going to go to Gath of all places. Let's pick up in verse 10. David arose and fled that day from before Saul. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? How bad are things in Israel if your place of safety and refuge is the hometown of Goliath? How bad is Saul's house if you're safer in the king of the Philistines' house than you are in the king of Israel's house? That's, that's what's being underscored here. He's, uh, David's trying to find somewhere to go where Saul's not going to follow him. And if, uh, Saul has been rather cautious, if not uh, downright um, 
a scaredy cat when it comes to dealing with the Philistines. Saul has not engaged the Philistines all that much. And so David goes to hang out among the Philistines and maybe hide there. Well, they recognize him and they see him right away and they notice, yeah, you're that guy they wrote that hit record about last year. All the girls knew the dance and everybody was singing that song, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. You're that guy they wrote that song about, aren't you? Surely you must be the king of the land if they're writing songs about you like that. And now you're here with us. What's going on? This is where David uh, starts to uh, improvise a little bit. He says, you know, uh, how am I going to get out of this? So he starts acting like a madman. He, he's apprehended and he's taken before the king and he starts scratching on the doors and he lets drool run down his beard. Uh, he's trying to get out of here alive. He thinks the best he can hope for is they may take pity on him and maybe not kill him if they don't think he's a threat. Um, and maybe they'll think it's a big joke that the king, who is such a great, you know, hero among Israel, is nothing but a blubbering fool. Turn him loose and let everybody see that the king of Israel, who they think is the king, make him think that he's, uh, 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 he's insane. So he's, he's playing this deception against Achish. But also, I wonder, is, is David imitating Saul a little bit? Uh, where did David learn how to act like a madman? Where did he learn how to be so convincing at this part? Well, Achish the king says, get him out of here. What do you think? I need more crazy people around here? I've got my quota of crazy people around here. Um, and so, so get out of here. So Saul acts like a madman because the spirit of God has left him. And Saul is an aberration. We, we're not used to dealing with madmen like Saul. Well, we get out to the Philistines and they say, oh, we've got, we've got madmen all over the place. We've got crazy people everywhere. This is where God's spirit doesn't reign. Lots of people act this way in pagan society. It's not abnormal among the Philistines. Well, the Philistines consider David harmless and they turn him loose. David is now nearly out of options. Where in the world do you go from this point? He writes two psalms. One of them we sang this morning, Psalm 34. He writes another psalm, 56, during this period of time. And that reveals to us the conflicting thoughts and emotions that David is going through here. In the next chapter, he goes down into the cave at Adullam. Caves are always synonymous with death. You go down into the earth. People hide in caves when they think it's the end of the world and all hope is gone. We've looked at that theme before. So, so that's where David goes, and that's where he ends up. He says, there's nothing more for me here. I can't do anything else. I might as well just go down and hide in a cave, and that's where he ends up. Verse, um, chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Adullam means refuge. So David goes to a place of hiding, a place of respite. But when his brothers and his 
father and his mother find out about this, they go to him. They go to join him there to side with him against the aggression of Saul. And then it turns out other people find out that he's there. I thought this was a hiding place. And now everybody's showing up. I'm trying to get away. And they're, they're showing up. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Every, every time we turn around, David is showing us, David is showing us Jesus. And there's another point I'll get to in just a minute why this is so significant. But, but it turns out there are other people uh, finding out that he's here. Everybody who's on the outs with Saul comes to David's side. This must have been a real raggedy bunch. You know, you've got mercenaries and people who owe, owe debts. And you've got uh, people who are just discontent. And you have all these people flocking and hiding with David leading this little bunch of mercenaries was probably training. In fact, I, I guarantee you, it was training for David in how to be a king. This is training for him in order to prepare himself to lead Israel later on. There are going to be some of these men who are going to say, hey, why don't we just go storm the palace and kill Saul and take the kingdom by force? And David would have to stop and articulate why we're not going to do that. This is why that's not the plan. And we're going to deal with that temptation to grasp for glory. Just as Peter tried to, tried to move Jesus that direction. James and John, Judas, of course, all tempt Jesus in their own way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Well, David is going to have to say the same thing. Get behind me, Satan. We're not going to play that game. We're not revolutionaries here. And David is going to have to model submission and sacrifice to these people in preparation for being king. Again, it's Jesus and the apostles all over here. David then sees to it that his mother and his father are taken care of. This, just like last week, the chapter just kind of breathed, and there was not a lot of detail. There was a lot of conversation. These, these chapters are just packed with information. I'm, I'm trying to unpack everything for you. But David takes his family up to Moab, to the king of Moab, and he asks for a favor. Can they stay here with you? Why does David go to Moab? Well, David is one-eighth Moabite. His father... Jesse is a quarter Moabite uh, from Granny Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, and it's probable that there's still some family ties. There's still some family connections here that they're able to draw on when they need it. And so David hides his family among the Moabites. Again, how bad is it in Israel if Moab is a better place than uh, God's people? We also learn here that the prophet Gad has joined David. When we get to 1 Chronicles, we find out that three prophets wrote these books. The books are called Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, two scrolls, one book of Samuel, 1 scroll and 2 scroll. But there are three prophets who put these things together. Samuel, who ends up dying, so we know he doesn't finish the second scroll. Gad is the second prophet who joins himself to David in this place and who continues writing. Gad is going to be privy to all this information. Gad writes, uh, and then Nathan later on in, in David's life, uh, Nathan plays a significant role. But the three prophets who write this book are Samuel, Gad, and Nathan. And now Gad shows up on the scene. Now our attention turns from David and we get caught up with Saul and what Saul has been up to this whole time. I'm just going to finish chapter 22 and we'll just hit the high spots and, and hear what happens um, with Saul. Let's go back to Saul's palace. Uh, chapter 22, verse 6. Now when Saul heard that David and the men were with him, 
When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with a spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. And there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me. I'm sorry. It just drips with pathos, doesn't it? There's not one of you who feels sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of Yahweh for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword, and inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is this king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of Yahweh, because their hand is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of Yahweh. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed Yahweh's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. Some observations, um, when we see Saul again, he's sitting under a tree with a spear in his hand because of course he is. Because he, does he sleep with it? Everywhere he goes, he's got the spear and he's throwing it at people. He's ruling with a spear, not out of love, not out of self-sacrifice, but he's ruling with fear. And if you're an Israelite, he, he thinks you belong to him. Everything you have belongs to him. Even the priests belong to him. Just like Samuel said would happen. He's heard that people are rising up and taking up for that son of Jesse. And he asks incredulously, wait a minute, is David going to give you vineyards? Is he going to give you, uh, uh, is he going to give you fields? Is he going to make you captains over his armies? Of course not. I'm the king. I'm the one who takes from people and redistributes it to my friends. He's not going to treat you like this. All of you have conspired against me. You're helping him. You're protecting him so that one day he can assassinate me. 
Saul's head is so full of conspiracies and paranoia, and he's projecting onto David what he himself would do if he were in the same situation. David is not planning to kill Saul. That's the furthest thing from his mind. David doesn't think like Saul thinks, but, but Saul thinks if I were in that position, I know what I would do, and that's what he's afraid of. At this point, Doeg the Edomite, I told you to remember him, the guy we met earlier, he says, I saw David at the sanctuary a while back, and I saw this priest, Ahimelech. He gave him bread, he gave him a sword, you know, he took care of him. And says, Saul says, all right, I found my conspirator. So he calls Ahimelech and the rest of the priests to come before him, and they aren't afraid to come. They're innocent. They don't, they don't have any worries here. They have clear consciences. Nobody's scared of what Saul might do here. They don't turn and run the other way. And Saul takes advantage of this. Nobody thinks that Saul's going to do what he's about to do. Everybody underestimates the evil of Saul. Saul interrogates the priests, and the conversation goes about the way we would expect it to. Ahimelech can claim innocence because David didn't tell him what he was doing. David came to me. He said he was on a mission from you. I obeyed him like I will obey you. I did what he asked of me. And Ahimelech makes the mistake of trying to reason with Saul. Just like Jonathan made the mistake of trying to talk to Saul like a human being, like let's have a normal conversation. Well, Saul's incapable of that. And that's what Ahimelech tries and, and it ends up being disastrous. Also, Doag is there and he remains silent. Doag could speak up and say, that's exactly what happened. The Ahimelech's testimony is true. That's precisely how it went. But Doag remains silent. Saul's response to the priest is, you're going to die today and everybody with you. And he turns to his guards, Saul does, and he says, kill them all. Well, uh, Saul now is crossing into some evil company. Saul is becoming a destroyer of Israel, a destroyer of the church. He kills Yahweh's servants, just like Pharaoh killing the babies, just like Balak and Balaam who curse and plot the destruction of the people. Just like Jezebel, who tries to wipe out the prophets. Like Athaliah, who tries to wipe out the house of David. Like Haman, who tries to kill all of God's people. Like Herod, who wants to kill all the babies. Saul is adding his name to the list of antichrists. Saul is adding his list to the name of tyrants who try to wipe out God's people and God's heritage. He is a seed of the serpent at this point, And he's going beyond the beyond here. Well, Saul's guards embarrass him. They're not going to lift their hands to strike the priests. They're more righteous than Saul. So the king says, Doeg, you do it. Doeg is happy to do it. He's an Edomite. He loves killing the children of Israel. And there's this long theme now of Edomites and their warfare on Israel after this point. And, and Saul is the one who gives them their first taste of blood. So, so Doeg kills the 85 priests, and then he goes on to the city of Nob with an army, and they raise the city. They kill men and women, children and nursing infants, all the animals. What is Saul doing here? He's treating a city of Israel, a priestly city no less, like a Canaanite city. He's carrying out holy warfare against Yahweh. This guy, he, he, he doesn't spare priests, he doesn't spare families, he doesn't spare their animals is this the same Saul that spared the Amalekite king? Is this the same Saul that spared his animals and his no lords and nobles? Yes, that's the very same Saul. We have watched Saul decline from a faithful servant of the Lord, a prophet even, to an apostate, to a denier of the faith, to a full-blown re rebel who now seeks to destroy the church. The priests and the worship of God are a rival 
to Saul. And he knows that they're only going to support David more and more. And so in order to win there, he's got to destroy them. And that's exactly what he does. In the midst of this, though, we have to step back and remember that God's curse on the house of Eli is being fulfilled, which just proves that even at his worst, Saul is still carrying out God's purposes. Saul is still helping God's word come to pass. This is still God's world, and this is still God's kingdom. And, and in cases like this, where the wicked house of Saul comes against the cursed house of Eli, we, we don't have to pick sides. God turns his people against each other to destroy each other. We, uh, God turns the wicked uh, against each other to destroy each other. It's when you're reading the news or you're watching the news and you think, I don't like these people and I don't like these people and they're fighting each other, but I've got to pick a side. No, you don't. You don't have to pick a side. Let them destroy each other. And that's what God is doing here uh, in, in so many words. Everybody's under judgment. We don't have to root for one side or the other. We root for the Lord to carry his purposes out. Don't fear tyrants. Don't, don't despair what they're doing and lose faith because God has even the tyrant in his hand. Okay, now Abiathar, who is Ahimelech's son, he comes to join David. He escapes. This is now Eli's great, great grandson. He tells David what just transpired and David takes responsibility. Uh, he reassures Abiathar though that safety is with him. And I want to read that last verse one more time and I will just end with this. Verse 23, David says to Abiathar, stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life but with me, you shall be safe. Again, we see Jesus. Where do you want to be in a world of tyranny and murder and madmen? You want to be with the Lord's anointed. Wherever he is, wherever the Lord's anointed is, that's where I want to be. Those who seek my life, seek his life. Those who hate me, hate him. We're in pretty good company. Despite the feeling of isolation and fear and stress on every side, we are not alone. And Israel has only one real choice. You can either cower in fear, you can join Saul in his tyranny, and that's not a good choice either, or you can unite yourself to God's anointed. And that's what they're going to do more and more and more. So you know that the only place of safety, the only place of solace, the only place of rest is with God's anointed and with his people. That's where Abiathar finds rest and peace. That's where you find rest and peace. And we'll talk more about Saul's tyranny next week, and we'll pick up here. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise you for the way that you paint in such rich colors the story of your people and the way you show us the depths of depravity. Father, keep us from hard-heartedness and from coldness of the kind that leads to this kind of behavior that Saul is engaged in. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and give us your peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.